Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. This podcast is brought to you in association with Globalizing the Rising, 1916 in Context, a major conference which will take place in University College Dublin on the 5th and 6th of February 2016. For more information, go to centenaries.ucd.ie. In this episode, a paper recorded at the Universities in Revolution and State Formation Conference, which took place in UCD Newman House on the 5th and 6th of June 2015. This project was funded by an Irish Research Council New Foundations Award and by a University College Dublin Decade of Centenaries Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This episode features a recording from Panel 1 on Day 2, Transformations Political, Transitions Educational, Ireland, 1890-1923. The paper, Trying to Settle Down But It's Extremely Difficult, IRA of Volunteers and University Life in the 1920s, was given by Duran Markham from University College Dublin. First of all, thank you very much, um, Connor. Um, for my paper today will look at Republicans who returned to university after their involvement on the anti-treaties Republican side during the Civil War. Now, it goes somewhat against the grain of this conference here because my paper examines the lack of revolutionary zeal amongst the students in question. The paper will examine the experiences of these Republican students in the universities, the assistance rendered onto them by the IRA and associated organisations, and the very malleable, curiously malleable Republican ideology embraced by these students. Now, it would be remiss of me to begin this paper without noting that those who did get to return to resume their studies after the Civil War were indeed the fortunate ones. Republicans after the Civil War immigrated in their tens of thousands, and for those who remained, the future wasn't awfully bright. Discrimination in employment continued, as did harassment by Special Branch and CID. Frank O'Connor, the writer, referred to those who immigrated, those Republicans, as the lost legion. And even Tom Barry freely admitted that he too would have left if he'd been able to get the money together to go to America. Only a minority of those involved in the War of Independence had access to a third-level education. Peter Hartis estimated that in County Cork during the War of Independence, less than 1% of volunteers consider themselves full-time students. And this number can only have plummeted during the Civil War, first of all with the number of students that abandoned their studies between 1919 and 1921, and second of all with the high proportion of working class and labouring class Republicans or people within the Republican movement during the Civil War. Um, I should note that when I say that they abandoned their studies in 1919 to 1921, that's the word that is used most commonly in the Bureau of Military History um, statements by the students themselves. Thus, a precious few were in a position to continue resuming their studies after their release for internment, and those who did faced considerable obstacles in doing so. So first of all, a number began studying for their examinations immediately upon release. When a large number of Republicans were released after November of 1923, a few went back to try and attempt and pass the Christmas 1923 exams, many borrowing heavily in order to do so. Now, One student wrote to um, Frank Aiken in February of 1924. Frank Aiken was the chief of staff of the IRA at the time. And this student, PJ Mullins, he was a medical student at UCG at the time. And he wrote that he and some of his former comrades, who were also back studying medicine in UCG, 
had attempted the Christmas 1923 exams, had borrowed heavily to do so, and now had nobody left that they could borrow money from. There simply wasn't anybody that they could borrow any more money from. Thus, Mullins wrote in February of 1924 to Aiken looking for some form of assistance. Of his um, comrades who were also, as I said, studying medicine in UCG, he wrote that some of them are hard hit and have practically no money to carry on. They are all men who have fought and a couple of them are active IRA men since 1916. Mullins himself wrote that he was in a bad way for a suit. Others couldn't pay their fees because they were estranged from their parents. Their parents were now hostile to them since their involvement in the Republican side in the Civil War. Thus they had no income themselves and certainly couldn't put themselves through college. Others who did enjoy familial support often came from families who couldn't afford to put food on the table, quite frankly, never mind put a student through college full-time. Andy Cooney, a later Chief of Staff of the IRA, would be an example of this. His family borrowed heavily in order for him to complete his medical studies, even though Cooney himself felt it was them that could do with the help, not so much him. Now, many students had also lost their scholarships while they were in jail or while they'd been on the run, and some of these scholarships had also expired. Many lasted only three years, but by 1923-24 would have expired. A later president of the GAA, Michael V. O'Donoghue, he fulminated in his Bureau of Military History statement about the discrimination practiced by Waterford County Council against Republicans when extending scholarships at the time. He wrote a lot about it. He was clearly still very, very annoyed about it. Now, again, for the sake of balance, it can't be claimed that this was the case for all Republicans. Todd Andrews, he, report, he recounted in his Man of No Property that all members of his circle of friends in 1924, all Republicans, they all had scholarships except for him. Frank Ryan, who would later become prominent in militant Republicanism and somewhat, I suppose, idolised by many, um, he had his scholarship restored after, the, after his involvement in the Civil War by Limerick County Council. And by the time Ernie O'Malley resumed his studies, one brother of his had already completed his medical studies and another was about to do so. So the poverty wasn't completely um, the case all the time. Now, the plight, though, of those less fortunate didn't fall on deaf ears. When Mullins wrote to Frank Aiken, who was the chief of staff, in early 1924 on behalf of the struggling students... Aiken responded that the case of university students who are unable to graduate through lack of funds is the hardest I know of. I suppose I digress ever so slightly, but many people have written, many writers have written, or historians, have written on Aiken's removal from the realities of life for Republicans in the post-Civil War period, and I think that's a pretty good example. It was very tough not to be able to finish her course, nobody's denying that, but there was a lot worse hardship going on throughout uh, Republicanism in the country at the time. However, Aiken did undertake to write to a prosperous acquaintance of his to see if he could raise a loan of between £500 and £1,000 to help out some of these students. It wasn't just PJ Mullins that had written to Aiken. The Director of Medical Services had written on behalf of other medical students looking for money for them so that they could complete their studies as well. So Aiken wrote to a prosperous acquaintance of his to see if he could raise some money and therein lay the genesis of the Irish Volunteers Students Aid Committee which was founded under the auspices of the IRPDF and that's the Irish Republican Prisoners Defence Fund in cooperation with the IRA. This committee sought donations or loans from Republican graduates for students who otherwise could not complete their studies. It was administered by the IRPDF, but the Adjutant General of the IRA took charge of informing officers of divisions and independent brigades of its existence. 
Now, what's notable about this committee is that, first of all, there was n- no major heat on what actual course you were studying. The most applications do come from medical students, but teachers weren't preferred over medical students or commerce students. There was none of that. You were allocated funds on the basis of your parental income, if it was relevant, i.e. if they were still talking to you, and second of all, on the basis of your record during the War of Independence. What was also interesting was that the fund actively hunted out people. It actually harried people into putting their names forward for this, for, um, for who might be eligible. For example, the Adjutant General of the IRA wrote to the OC of the 3rd Southern Division, a guy called Dan O'Neill. He was looking for the names of eligible students, but he also wanted to see if O'Neill himself might resume his studies. And he wrote, wouldn't you yourself think of finishing your agricultural studies? If so, let me know and I'll make arrangements with regard to fees. This kind of correspondence does show that the IRA's interest wasn't entirely benevolent or wasn't just charitable. First of all, if you had students who were completing their medical studies, they were less likely to immigrate, more likely to stay in the country. And remember that the anti-treaty, that the IRA after 1924 was decimated by immigration. Second of all, if you had more volunteers that were in university, that were in third level education, it did give an increased respectability to a movement that at the time could do with all the respectability it could get. And third of all, if you had more third level uh, students, volunteers, you might be inclined to attract more sympathy of fellow professionals in local areas and, again, increase the respectability of the IRA. The very fact that this concern wasn't just benevolent can be seen, again, in Andy Cooney's case. Andy Cooney was an up-and-coming member of the IRA, and in 1924, Aiken wrote to him to offer him the position of Quartermaster General of the IRA. Cooney turned it down. He declined citing his family's desperate financial circumstances and the pressure that he was under in university to complete his studies. But Aiken responded, and his response inferred that if Cooney didn't take the position, that would be tantamount to desertion. So he wasn't overly concerned with Cooney's studies, not to that extent anyways. To give you an example of the kind of money that we're talking about here, Students' Aid Committee by September of 1924 had promised some £2,000 to students. Examples of these awards were... In the case of Mick Crowley of Kilbritton County Cork, he had his university fees paid and he received £5 a month every month until summer of 1925. PJ Mullins, he who had written to Frank Aiken, he had his fees paid, as were the fees of the medical students which the Director of, Milit- of Medical Services had written about. It was only a minimal amount that the committee could provide and IRA GHQ was eager to remind officers of that fact. But... What of the students themselves once you got them back into university? Well, first of all, the one thing that does stand out is the paucity of passion that any of them had for their course. Andrews wrote that a university education was seen by him and his peers as being strictly functional. It would get you a job, and none of he, neither he nor his peers were awfully bothered about the nature of that job. Um, Ernie O'Malley wrote that he didn't know anything except the handling of men, And of his medical studies, he wrote that he had to, and I quote, go through the mountainous work which one must go to get a degree. I suppose I will have to muscle along somehow, though I know I waste my time. And that was certainly a far cry from the excitement and drama of life as a guerrilla soldier. Now, student poverty wasn't and is not a novel phenomenon, but the burden of debt did vary. Todd Andrews could write that apart from college fees, he only needed money for cigarettes, tram fares, cheap seats at the theatre, cinema, and an occasional book. 
But for others, it caused an awful lot more stress. We've seen how Mullins was forced to write to Aiken. We've seen how representations were making, made on behalf of other students. Mullins wrote again in 1924, and this time he wrote of the depression caused by the idea that even if one managed to qualify, he would start out under a burden of debt. And in what I took as an allusion to the, or a reference to the mental health implications of this, as we would say today, he wrote that debt and the almost failure to keep going do not improve the finer instincts. He was in debt himself up to about £150, and Mullins himself was married and had two children, so he was in a particularly bad way. For the other students, seen as most of them had left in 1919, 20 and 21, they were about four years older than anybody else in their class, at least four years older. And this definitely did impact on their interest in student activities and student politics. However, we do know that soccer was played by some of them, and the UCD soccer team of 1924 boasted at least five students from the 1919 era. P.F. Donovan recalled of the Ellen Hedge Society, the Literary and History Society at UCD, that at Saturday night debates, men like the O'Rahilly, Ernie O'Malley, Frank Ryan, Tom O'Rourke, met and made friends with others far removed from them in political outlook and background. But they tended to travel in packs. Very few of them went anywhere on their own. Ernie O'Malley has been described as being the driving force behind the founding of the UCD Dramatic Society. And the Common Gaelic at UCD was also a very popular place for Republicans to hang out. More than once, the position of Rochtra, or auditor of the Common Gaelic, was so hotly contested that it threatened to cause a split among the tight-knit uh, Republican community in UCD. Now, Fergal, Fergal McGarry, in his short biography of Frank Ryan, has written that one of the effects of the defeat of civil war was that it bound together tightly the remaining rump of Republicans in the country. And it was no different in the universities. By October, well, as late as October of 1924, UCG still had its own battalion, and they openly marched at the reburial of um, Republicans who had been executed during the Civil War. Here in UCD, along with Phyllis Ryan, she later married Tom, Sean T. O'Kelly and apparently knew every Republican graduate in the city. Repub our students, Republican students, came together to form a loose organisation that would bring together Republican students. But it wasn't a Sinn Féin coming, it was a Republican club. Now, ostensibly they gathered to bring each other together. Um, they also wanted to revive Republicanism within the university and they wanted to put forward Republican candidates for the three national university parliamentary seats that were available. The reality was that the ethos of the Republican club at UCD was impossibly vague and that allowed Republicans, like we say the militant Frank Ryan, to coexist alongside more conservative people such as Tyke Forbes and Todd Andrews, for example. There was very little radicalism within the UCD um, Republican Club, which is in contrast to the claim of two of Frank Ryan's biographers. They claimed that the UCD Republican Club became a focus of radical Republican agitation in Dublin city centre. But they really only based this on Frank Ryan's involvement in various Poppy Day and Remembrance Day skirmishes. And anybody familiar with Frank Ryan's life will know that he probably would have been involved in the Republican Club or no Republican Club. Now, the UCD Republican Club also was an example of that otherness that was so ardently pursued by Republicans in the post-Civil War period. They never sought UCD recognition. They didn't get any grants from UCD. And instead of using UCD facilities and getting a grant from UCD, their meetings were held in various venues throughout the city. 
There was very little in the line of radical thought going on at these meetings or anything too exciting. In fact, some of them were held at Austin Stack's house in Sandymount, and the main recollection of those ones was that everybody was expected to perform their party piece. So there wasn't too much radical uh, thinking going on there, particularly not re- uh, revolutionary thinking. I think a more of an accurate assessment of the club's radicalism or lack thereof is that the fact that Andy Cooney, later Chief of Staff of the IRA, he was involved in founding the club, yet never referred to it ever again. Second of all, when Fianna Fáil was founded, there was no split within the club. In the June 1927 elections, they put forward a candidate on an independent Republican platform for one of the parliamentary seats, Arthur Cleary. And he had the support of Common Amon members, Sinn Féin, IRA and Fianna Fáil. So the very fact that they could all stay together does point to the ambiguity and the vagueness of their aims and objectives. Um, their most high-profile activity and widely reported activity was the hosting of a debate between Hannah Sheehy, Skeffington and Sean O'Casey after the Plough and the Stars went up in the Abbey. It was reported in the national media and... The recollections of them are that O'Casey got a good hearing, but again, the fact that such offence had been caused and the fact that your college students disagreeing with O'Casey on what Dublin slums look like do, again, point to a kind of a conservatism within that and certainly a lack of radicalism and revolutionary thinking. Um, Just on the subject of the UCD Republican Club, not entirely sure how long it lasted. We think it lasted up until about the 1930s. It did die a death, though, because it was revived in the 1960s. So, to sum up, of the experience of students in the universities, Republican students in the universities in these years, I think that perhaps the most damning indictment of these years was the fact that very, very little is written about it. This paper here has been gleaned from many sources, and it does draw heavily on Todd Andrews' memoirs, but even in the chapter dealing with UCD and the UCD Republican Club, he does stray from the point a fair bit. Republican students of note who resumed their studies had already achieved their notoriety, perhaps Frank Ryan being the example. And though all of the UCD graduates whose sources we can, we can gather, they all mention their acquaintance with Frank Ryan, they are always keen to distance themselves from his activities, his more militant and extremist activities. And again, that shows you again that kind of conservatism, that, that tiredness, I suppose, uh, which was present. I'll sum up by saying that though all university experiences vary to some degree, They were infinitely more formative for some than they were for others. And the striking commonality between all who had fought from 1919 onwards and had resumed their studies 1923 onwards was a desire for stability, a very vague, undefined stability that they couldn't quite put their finger on. And though a university degree couldn't guarantee this stability, time in the university did provide a respite of sorts for those who, in all aspects of their lives, to quote Ernie O'Malley, We're trying to settle down, but finding it extremely difficult. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this History Hub podcast. You can find many more podcasts at historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts.